Welcome to the eighth episode of the Military Medicine Podcast, hosted by Matt Kane and myself, James Coote. Before we get into the podcast, we want to thank those who responded to the feedback survey. The answers were honest and incisive. They've given us plenty to work on, one point of which was to keep the length down. Now we'll try, but it is challenging when you're hosting people as fascinating as Steve Hart, this month's guest. And thanks to Lieutenant Colonel Sue Pope for the recommendation and link up. Steve was an officer in the Marines for 20 years before joining the NHS and is now the Managing Director of the NHS Leadership Academy. In the podcast, Steve explains what outstanding healthcare leadership looks like, why it matters for patient care, and why signing up to leadership courses should not be your first port of call for improving your own leadership. It was an inspiring chat from my perspective. We hope you gain as much from it as we did. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Steve, uh, and welcome to the, the podcast. We're going to shake things up a bit with this episode and jump straight in with five quick-fire questions that you're only allowed to answer with a single word or phrase, if that's okay with you. I'll you try. Ready? I'll try. I'll try. Great stuff. So first up, is it more challenging to manage Marines or medics? I, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's uh, easy to lead great teams, wherever they are. Okay. Uh, what's the main currency of credibility for a healthcare leader? Compassion. Okay. Who makes better leaders in the NHS? Clinicians or non-clinicians? Uh, no professional stovepipe has a monopoly on good leaders <laughs> or bad leaders. Great answer. Um, what is your personal favourite quote related to leadership? So it's almost impossible to answer that with one word, I think, but I'm going to go with uh, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a moulder of consensus. And, and finally, on the five, uh, which book or resource should a listener pick up to improve their own leadership? Uh, I would say put down your TED Talk, archive your leadership book and go and ask your team what they need from you. Like it, like it. Brilliant. So we'll get on with the podcast proper uh, now. And I want to get straight to the point. From the patient's perspective, how significantly is their care affected by healthcare leadership? There's there's just such a huge body of evidence that better leadership saves lives. Um, I'm sure many of the listeners to your podcast will know the work of Professor Michael West and that, that mm. link of compassionate leadership and its association to performance. There is, I think, that sense of great leadership as being you know, soft chairs and scented candles, that somehow it's pink, it's, it's not... It's not hard-edged. It's not performance-related. You know, the leadership's the interesting thing that yeah. we do after we've discussed operations and finance. Um, and the reality for me is I would invert that. It's okay. actually it's your people that are the determinants of your long-term success. And the thing that supports and helps your people is outstanding leadership. Um, so supporting our workforce, supporting our people across the NHS, serving patients and communities means having great leaders and focusing on that. Having a a proper focus on how we develop great leaders and great leadership across our organisations and systems. Brilliant. And so the NHS Leadership Academy, which you, you, you direct, has, has got the mission statement to support and enable outstanding leadership, as you just said, across the NHS. So can you give us an example of, of what outstanding healthcare leadership looks like? Yeah. And, and I'm going to go back to, to Michael West's work. Um, and it's really in four parts. It's compassion, inclusion, collaboration, and knowledge of improvement skills and how to apply them. And it, I guess there's, there's risk of this very much sounding like a rehearsed answer because <laughs> this is something that I talk about a great deal. 
because um, like you know what we're searching for isn't it is the simplicity on the far side of complexity because there's no doubt in dealing with people it's a hugely difficult complex thing but I think if you compassion is that that first and most important thing you asked me a few seconds ago what is it that defines an outstanding leader in in the healthcare mm. setting and it's that sense of compassion thoughtful kindness mm. which at its first instance is about listening listening with fascination taking time to understand yeah. responding with empathy that human connection but it's not compassionate unless you then do something yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a requirement <laughs> to do something so compassion about listening with fascination but then doing something and then inclusion and I'm um, you know and James you and I are both sound this podcast we're mm. both dare I say I'm going to name it myself I'm a middle class white male and yeah. I'm looking across and I, I reckon you're pretty much the same let's, <laughs> yeah. let, let's say um, you know, our NHS isn't like that our yeah. NHS is reflective of the enormous diversity and the fantastic diversity of our society and yet when we look into the NHS senior leadership positions and indeed the culture that we've got mm. you know what it's orientated so that people like you and me get on mm. that's not right and indeed you know, so from a moral position that's not right 70% of our colleagues are female in the NHS. The black and minority ethnic colleagues are not seeing the same advantages. They're disproportionately represented in disciplinary processes. So great leadership in the NHS has got to be about inclusion, creating cultures of inclusion and sustaining them. And that means more than just listening. It means taking actions. And it was great to see you know, the interim people plan has just been launched and you see in that this commitment to changing our approaches to disciplinary processes, to actually changing the lived experience of people who are different, changing mm. our talent management processes. But as, as individual leaders as well, what is our responsibility to be more inclusive in the cultures we create and be better allies to colleagues? I think so compassionate inclusion. And then collaboration. So we've got to work across these traditional boundaries. You mentioned clinicians, non-clinicians. I was mm. never a non-clinician until I joined the NHS, <laughs> and now all of a sudden I'm a non-clinician. It's like, oh, okay, so I, I, I categorise myself in a whole new way. Us and them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we've got these professional stovepipes. We've got, we've got medics, we've got nurses, we've got AHPs, and we've got geographies and regions, and we've got primary care and secondary care and social care, and, and we've housed all these boundaries that we've constructed and we've created, and at the heart of it are patients and communities who we serve. So how do we as healthcare leaders work across those boundaries, break them down in service of patients and communities? So um, compassion, inclusion, and collaboration. The last one, quite a long answer to this, I realise I'm No, I like it. The, the, the last bit is um, knowledge of improvement skills and how to apply them. So it's no accident that wherever we see a really high-performing healthcare organisation, they've got a defined approach to improvement. Yeah. Their leaders, uh, their teams, they know an improvement approach and they apply it. Now, I'm not going to anchor myself to Lean or Six Sigma or Virginia Mace or any one of the ones that are out there, but just to say that having an approach to improvement, of continuous mm. improvement, is absolutely associated with being a great healthcare leader, knowing how to do it. So those four things, really. Thanks. That's, that's really insightful. And I guess following on from that, I'd be intrigued to know what the, the key leadership lessons you learned uh, as an officer in the Marines were and how you've translated them to to your work now in the NHS? So, when I was serving, and I served for 20 years um, in the Marines, I was complacent about the quality of people I worked with. Mm. Um, and being part of a team that is patterned by high trust and by high support was an enormous privilege. Um, 
I love the sense that I never wondered for a moment what the Marines and paratroopers who I served ever thought. So I, I worked for a time I commanded um, in the parachute regiment and, and I, I was never left wondering what yeah. the teams thought. They would always just come out and say it and that can always be quite uncomfortable as a leader, getting that feedback very directly. Yeah. But it's, it's typical of that high trust, high challenge environment. Mm. Um, and I think that is something that as a culture... I would really wish wherever I work, you know, you don't you you don't realise what a gift it is to have that feedback and to have that open, honest dialogue with the team within the team. Um, so I think the lesson I have that I would take forward with me is is sustaining those cultures and looking around. So how do we create that culture of trust in whatever your team are in, mm. where we can have those really honest conversations? It's not personal; it's about how we all grow together. Um, yeah, that's what I really. I don't say what I miss because I have it in large parts in the, yeah. in the team I work in now but when I look back in the in times in service it, it, was, it was it was a rich scene that I was complacent of when I was serving I'd love to double down on that a little bit because uh, I had dinner with some surgeon colleagues at the weekend and, and one of the questions they were hoping that I'd pose to you was how do you keep an environment and foster a community of high trust high challenge um, with uh, Generation Snowflake, as they refer to me, <laughs> people who might be likely to perhaps um, say it's bullying. How do you tread that line carefully and give thoughtful and meaningful challenge if something's been done to a not sufficient standard, whilst not veering into the realms of, of bullying and crossing that line? So I think you can't give good feedback unless you know the person you're giving that feedback to. Okay. So I think the first step for every, every leader is to know your people. Mm. Um, I remember a, a great bit of advice that I was given many, many years ago, which never, was actually never pass up an opportunity to have a cup of tea or smoke a cigarette with the team, which, I mean, you know, I, with, with the healthcare audience in mind, I, let's just stick with the team. But the, the, the opportunity just to know the people, yeah. know who you're with, share, your, share yourself. You know, we started off, we spoke a little bit about what I did on my Sunday afternoon, so that's I've got kids. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you've got a team and you don't know their family circumstances, you don't know where they live, you don't mm. know about what they do outside of work. Yeah. They don't know you as a human. You're never going to be able to have a good high-trust relationship. Mm. You've got to have that high-trust relationship that allows you then to sit down and give good feedback. So yeah. I think the artificially constructed generational gaps, and there are differences yeah. in generations about you know, things that they do and, and the way they've been schooled, but broadly speaking, I'd say if you know someone you can be really honest with them and you can say, hey, you know, and there's all these techniques for feedback and go and find a TED talk about how to give good feedback. Yeah. But fundamentally, if you know the person you're giving the feedback to, anyone will take it, I think. Leadership training is clearly mandated uh, in, in the military, but I, but I guess it isn't formally mandated in the NHS or in many medical schools. And, and do you think this, this should or ever will change? I think it's already changing. Um, so we've worked with the Medical Royal Colleges and uh, Health Education England to put leadership development training and support into all undergraduate clinical pathways. Yeah. Uh, 
because I think it's an essential part of anyone's clinical practice. I, I, speak, I speak now as a non-clinician, <laughs> but I think it's a, uh, for those of us, I'm now even doing the quotation marks with my fingers. Um, uh, it is an essential part of anyone's clinical practice, that idea of, of leadership skills will all be part of or lead teams. Yeah. Um, so we, we've worked with Health Education England and the Medical Royal Colleges to implement that into both undergraduate and postgraduate curricula. Really, really important. And we're also building um, an increasing body of evidence that our NHS needs to move to a position where leadership learning is at the core of our professional development. Mm. Um, and I, I have a, a statistic that I use a great deal. There are 276,000 team leaders across our NHS. So I won't use gender for change boundaries, but if you, if you, if you think about those people who lead teams, 276,000 team leaders. And what's our confidence level that those leaders have had the development support they need to be compassionate, inclusive, to collaborate, mm. and that they have a knowledge of improvement skills and how to apply them? And I want us to be an NHS where we can be absolutely confident that every single one of those 276,000 people has the knowledge, skills, attitudes and behaviours that are required to be compassionate, inclusive, to collaborate across boundaries mm. and have a knowledge of improvement skills and how to apply them. And that feels to me like a really doable thing. We can get that done. So that's kind of where I'm focused at the moment. And how will we know that we've achieved that? How will we measure that effect? What? Staff engagement. If I could point to the one metric mm. that I would absolutely love to shift as an NHS, it would be our staff engagement score. How can we make the NHS the best place to work? Well, thanks, that's a great answer. Um, now the focus of this podcast is, is, is medical innovation and uh, I'd like to kind of hear your views on how clinicians of all types and, and at all levels can lead in a way that specifically fosters innovation. So you've heard me um, talk several times we've been going through this about culture mm. and trust. Mm. Oh, I think that's absolutely where we're at with innovation because innovation for me is about willingness to fail, willingness to give a go as opposed to, I have a great idea, it's definitely going to work, let's do it. Yeah. In a successful innovation, it's about, I wonder if this will work. No, it doesn't. What about something else? Here's a problem. How am I going to solve it? How are we going to address it? And to have the psychological safety to know that failure is fine, indeed, failure is valedictory, trying something, giving it a go and it not working, that's brilliant. But you can only really do that in a mm. culture and environment that makes you feel safe to do that. So for all leaders at every level... Just looking at your team, your small team, what was the last thing when someone came in and said, I gave this a go and it didn't work? And it was, and the answer was, that's brilliant. brilliant. I'm delighted. Well done. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for that failure because we can now all learn from it and move on. And you don't feel judged for it. You don't feel you have to hide it or move it away. So I think if you want to create an environment, a culture in your team that fosters innovation and agility, it's about creating that high trust environment. Okay. And so, so finally, I just want to draw out some next steps for listeners, because I'm sure they'll have all left this podcast, hopefully feeling quite inspired by your message uh, around how we can change this culture and how we can lead effectively in healthcare. But how can they practically improve their leadership? Earlier, you mentioned some, uh, some of the activities you undertake as part of the Leadership Academy. Which courses should they be looking at after this? And, and, and how can they access the mentors you talked about? Uh, so... 
if the message that comes away from this is that the way to improve your leadership is to go and do a leadership development program, I've probably somehow missed the mark. <laughs> uh, although you definitely should, and you should go onto the Leadership Academy website and find a program that's suitable for your level, and you should apply for it. I very much welcome you to come on it. Um, uh, but I think we, we often talk about a uh, sort of a 70-20-10 um, ratio uh, about, and we can argue about if it's 70, if it's 20, if it's 10, but like a, a big bit, a smaller bit, and an even smaller sure, bit. Yeah. So the big bit is about your work. How can you reflect on the work that you're doing with the, the role that you've got and draw learning from that? Reflect on that learning and understand mm. from your experiences. So if you want to develop as a leader, are you doing the right job? Are you doing the role now that's going to help you grow and help you shift? And if not, what would? Mm. And to engage with your, your, your line manager, your peers, your relationships, try and find that role. Find that role where you can do the majority of your learning because the majority of our leadership learning is done in that role. The next bit, the sort of the 20, is, is peer support and peer relationships, so coaches, mentors. And absolutely, you can access that through the Leadership Academy. Get in touch with your regional Leadership Academy. We'll have coaching networks, mentor, um, mentor details, and we can find someone for you. But the best mentor will probably be someone that you find because mm. that'll be someone you've got a relationship with. Um, and how do you anchor into a mentor and then treat it as a proper mentoring relationship? Um, so we offer mentoring programs for people to come on. So find a mentor and work with them and a coach and work with them. And better yet, be one yourself. Mm. You know, as you rise, lift. Mm. I'm enormously privileged to mentor some colleagues in the front line of the service who keep me fantastically grounded and close to what happens. I learn more from them than they probably ever do from me. Mm. But be a mentor to others and find your own mentor. That's sort of 20%. And the last bit is development programs. So what, what are your development needs? Find a program that helps you and helps you cover that. So if you're serving in the military and you've done senior command course or junior command course or something that, uh, that gives you a level of leadership learning, you might have other development needs. But they'll be unique to whoever you are. Try and understand them and then find a development program that covers that gap. Um, we run some fantastic programs in the Leadership Academy. Have a look. Be delighted to get your application through. Um, but yeah, try and think of it in not just a, I need to do this program, then I'll be there. It's that sort of, there's, yeah. there's my role, there's the peers and mentors I have, and there's a development program as well. Okay, that's really interesting. So reflect on your own practice first, work out what your deficiencies are, and then address those specifically, rather than doing the age-old thing of, Hey, I'm going to sign up to a course because I'll look great on my CV. Because I'll look great on my CV. Yeah. And I think and when you say reflect on your own practice, perhaps the, the most useful first step is uh, is to do a 360. Okay, so yeah. get some feedback from others. Get some feed, get some honest feedback from people, people who are who you're privileged to serve as their leader, your peers, people who you work for. Try and get it from more than just the job you do now. Get a handful of people. And, and again, we've got a 360 tool in the academy that I'm very happy for people to access. Brilliant. Um, are these all on the website? Easily these are on the website. Google. Easily found through the, web, through, through the website. You can find the, a 360 program. Uh, and then if you, you can also get some coaching support from it as well. So once you've got the feedback from your... Um, your 360, then what do you what do you do with that? Yeah. You've got to try and internalise that feedback. And you know, hearing candid feedback can be. I mean, I've had some sort of some fairly existential moments. You know, beyond sort of you know, <laughs> where people give you, you know, but then it becomes kind of addictive. You have that feedback, and you're like, well, geez, well, okay, what am I going to do with that? And then you you know you work through it, and then you're like, well, wow, what's more, have I have I got better? So you want to do it again. So yeah, do the 360 feedback, and then figure out where you're going to go with it. Brilliant. And I just want to uh, close on a final question, kind of looking into the future. I guess as we enter the fourth industrial revolution into the information age uh, and we're sort of presented with a data deluge, 
I wonder what you think as leaders this is going to present to us as a challenge and how do we over overcome this new amount of data that we're getting that we're presented with on a day-to-day basis the fact that some of our jobs might be automated or replaced by by AI Mm. what are the considerations for the jobbing leader as we move into the information age Um, so I I think in a in a couple of areas the first is leaders need to be digitally literate Mm. it is no longer appropriate as any leader at any level to be told I don't understand the technology technology is part of our lives it's how we operate and if you don't understand how to have a conversation with those who are more technically skilled than you and able to access that kind of learning, you're going to be level. So it might be that that's a development need. And if you haven't mm-hmm. got that, there's plenty of learning out there. Go and get some development um, on, on digital uh, capacity and capability. Uh, but I would say that leading and leadership is a fundamentally human enterprise. Mm. It is about the relationship between teams and between individuals and that's not going anywhere for a long long time yet Um, AI is certainly a long way it can help us do some roles and some jobs better Mm. but it's no way taking over um, establishing uh, an empathetic and supportive human relationship between people and for that to be truly effective it's about knowing each other and having those moments, and I, I say to my team, you know, going out for coffee with people is work. Mm. Taking as long as it's someone from work, <laughs> going, <laughs> going, out, going out for your colleagues and, and getting to know them and being part of that team—that is work. It's absolutely essential to build those relationships and do the work that humans can do. Mm. So there's some really good evidence out there that says that leaders should be focusing in the region of 30% of their time on their team and on the people in their team. And it's a lot. It's a lot. And I think about that, and I know this data, and I know this research, and I know it's it's pretty strong. It's very strong, in fact. And I look at my diary, and I'm there scratching my head going, so (laughs) where's the 30%? Because it feels like I'm spending a lot of time doing stuff that's not about supporting my team and helping my team. So I'm constantly trying to pull back and say, right, this this is it, focus on it. And I'd say that's a really, where's the value add for you as a leader? Where's the time? Where's the time commitment? and I think that I had such a great piece of advice from a, a leader, a chief executive in the NHS, when I very first joined the NHS, and she said, you are your diary. If you say something's important, where is it? Yeah. And we were talking about this, and we were at a leadership conference, and she said, I constantly tell my team that leadership's important, so I'm here. I'm showing up, I'm at a leadership conference, and I'm speaking, because leadership's important to me. Um, yeah. And if you say something's important to you, don't assume it's somewhere else. So if you're saying that workforce and staff engagement and culture is important to you, how's it showing up in your work? How's it showing up in what you're measuring and how's it showing up in what actions you're taking? So that sense of you know, being your diary and focusing where, where you'll really make a difference. Thanks for that, Steve. That's, that's a great answer. And, and thanks so much for your, for your time joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate it. To our listeners, thanks for listening. We, we hope you enjoyed it um, as much as I did. Please do engage with us and give us your feedback on Twitter at Milmed Podcast and remember to log your CPD. Until next time, thanks. Thanks, James.